Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, June 15th, we are studying James chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. When Christians need wisdom to rejoice in trials of various kinds, what should they do? Whether rich or poor, St. James says they should ask God in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. So as we get started today, Pastor Linnell, there's not a ton of context in the sense that we're just only four verses into the book of James, but what do we need to know, bigger picture-wise, going into this text that will help us dig in? Well, we're doing this on on Monday, so let's let's do just a little bit, a little bit of refresher on uh, James and the book of James and where it's come from and what it's doing um, that we heard uh, or will hear on on Friday. And if I say anything that contradicts Dr. Giese, just go with him. Um, but so James is is an epistle that is uh, written between about forty and fifty A.D. Right, and this this epistle, this letter is addressed to Jewish Christians, and it addresses how they should live amidst a, an unconverted people, an unconverted world, because the Jews to which he is writing are sort of scattered for various reasons. And we believe that the letter is uh, somewhere between these dates, because it's probably after the martyrdom of Stephen in about 35 AD, when Paul starts his persecution, and uh, Saul at that time, and gives them enough time to scatter out and to set down some roots in some places. But also probably before the Jerusalem Council in 52 AD, which dealt a lot with Jewish-Gentile relations. Now, um, this is an epistle, it's titled James, so James wrote it. But which James? Because there's a lot of Jameses, if you don't know, right? There's James, the brother of John and the son of Zebedee. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. There's James, the just. There's James, the brother of Jesus. James, the lesser. There's Rick James. And, you know, which one is the one writing? Um, I don't I don't know. And to make things more complicated, right, uh, there's those that suppose that some of these Jameses are actually the same person. So, like, James, the son of Alphaeus and James, the just. Um, you know, these are presented at least in, by some to be the same person, right? Because their deaths were so similar, at least as it's recorded by the historian Hippolytus. So again, which James is it? Um, I don't know, but I'm looking forward to hearing what Dr. Giese says on Friday, because he'll probably know. But I'm not sure if if really it, uh, it matters so much, at least to me. But that is one of the objections that Luther had to the letter. Because Luther didn't know either. Luther had a lot of objections to James, but that's one of the things that that he had an objection to. Now, speaking of objections to the letter, the epistle of James also kind of gets a lot of hate from Lutherans based on two things. And the first, I think, is that the epistle of James is often misused by people and 
those especially who want to talk about a salvation on the basis of works. You know, the famous phrase from the book of James is faith without works is dead. And, you know, it'll be very exciting to hear that section of, of sharper iron. Um, but the second objection is that I think some Lutherans kind of think that the epistle, the epistle actually says that, and it, and it doesn't. Both of those objections, I think, should really kind of be cast aside, uh, unless, of course, you're ready to set aside the majority of Scripture, because I'll, I'll tell you what, the majority of Scripture gets misused by people mm. who want to, you know, teach bad things. I, I don't think it's the right response to, to reject something uh, just because it's often taught poorly. I think the right response is maybe to spend some time and teach it the right way. Mm. So let's let's do that today. Um, would you be kind enough, could you read what we've got going on this morning? Yeah, let's do that. And just, I mean, just as a way of response, in terms of what you're saying there about the objections that Lutherans have for James, that was precisely the reasoning I had in reading it now. We just finished the book of Romans, which which arguably you could say is Luther's favorite epistle. And I, I thought, well, let's try his perhaps least favorite epistle, or at least it comes off that way sometimes in his writings. I know he says different things at different times concerning the epistle. But in terms of the way Lutherans look at it, I think if you had to rank the epistles in the New Testament, Romans would be really high of, on most Lutherans' lists, and James would probably be really low on most Lutherans' lists. So let's let's read the two, one after the other, and let's let's see how God's Holy Scripture is, in fact, one, that there's not two doctrines there, but, but in fact, one, united in Christ Jesus. So, yeah, I mean— that's that's exactly what we're going for. So let's let's go ahead and, and go into the text. Verses James chapter 1 verses 5 through 11 this morning. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." That is the text we're going to look at today, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Pastor Linnell, in preparation for this study on the book of James, I've, I've read through the epistle itself just in one sitting a couple of times. And one of the things that the, the style of James is very clearly different than what we're used to in much of Paul's epistles, I think. And one of the things that at first glance might seem to be the case is that he seems to jump from one topic to another, and sometimes it's hard to tell what the connection is. I'm not sure that's the case with this text particularly. I think there's a connection between what we heard in verses 1 through 4 and what he jumps into here, and I, I kind of hinted at that in my introduction. But help us connect some of those—are there connections, or is he being random? What What do you think? I, I really do think— uh, that there's a, a a lot of really good connections. I think it it starts to come out really well in verses nine through eleven, how he's starting to bring uh, these things together. So, 
when we talk about those first couple of verses, uh, count it all as joy. So starting at verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, when we read verse five and it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, I think the good Lutheran question would be, what does he mean? What does that mean, wisdom? Mm -hmm. And, well, he's talking about that previous paragraph. So do you have the ability to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds and when your faith is tested, when you're suffering? Do you have the ability to look at those things going on in your life and count those as joy, to rejoice in all things? This is what James is referring to when he talks about wisdom. And so when he says that, right, um, uh, he, he says, sorry, I got lost for a second. So he says, um, if you lack wisdom, then let him ask God. Well, I at first might, I don't know, find that to be slightly offensive, especially if you're connecting the two. Because if, if you're looking at somebody and you're saying, oh, man, your life it's really hard right now and you're really suffering and you've got a lot of trials going on. And the fact that you can't rejoice in those shows that you lack wisdom and maturity. And then you're like, wait a second, what? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm suffering. And your response is basically to say, yeah, that's it's because you lack wisdom. That I, I think that that's a lot of times kind of the way that it would come across. And, and it would be, it would be offensive. I mean, why should I be considered lacking in spiritual wisdom and maturity just because I'm suffering and my continued suffering assaults my faith? My faith. Um, so yeah, I, I too would be offended. And I've been offended by teachings that I've heard that are very much like that because this, this happens a lot. So somebody will really be suffering. They'll be having a hard time. And then uh, somebody will look at them and be like, you just got to have faith, man. Yeah, I know that. But the reason that I came to you wasn't because I don't think that I need faith. It's because my faith is hurting. And you, you, what did you do? You put that back on me, mm. you know, or you turn around and you, you tell somebody, you know, yeah, well, you know, God's trying to teach you a lesson. So you should probably figure out what that is. And, and what are you doing right now? Mm. God's trying to teach you. So even, even if that's, that's not academically incorrect, it's, it, it lacks a tremendous amount of compassion and you're, you're really missing the point of why it is that they're coming to you and talking to you about these things. They're struggling and they're asking for help. And your response is, yeah, you should go fix that. So I, I, don't, I don't think that's what James is doing. Um, and indeed, it's not what he's doing. James doesn't direct you back to yourself and back to your faith as if faith was something generated by you. Or as if, if you could just figure it out, then all of a sudden your sufferings are going to go away. Now, James tells us to turn to God for help, for comfort, for strength, for maturity of that faith, and for that wisdom that he talks about. So he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. So not only uh, does James direct us back to God and not back to ourselves, but he also says that God gives generously and without reproach. Without reproach. What sense would it make for James to tell you 
that God doesn't rebuke you if you pray to him when you're struggling in the faith, only to be rebuking you himself for not having wisdom or for struggling in the faith. And so I think it's really important um, that when we read through these things, we, we really try to not stop at sort of the end of one phrase, but really trying to see what James is talking about in all of it. And so again, kind of to, to recap, James, as he starts off, he says, you know, there's really terrible things that are going to come along and really terrible things that are going to happen. But you can rejoice in all of those things. You should be able to rejoice in all of those things. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But if you're really struggling to rejoice in all of those things, if you're really struggling to see God's love and comfort and to have that sort of spiritual wisdom to discern these terrible things in the world, then fear not, for the Lord does not rebuke you. But pray to him that he may increase your faith, that he may, he may grow that wisdom within you. And the Lord, he's not going to rebuke you for it. He's going to, he's going to love you and he's going to give to you as a, as a dear father might. And I, I think that that's because James gets presented a lot of times as a very law heavy epistle, but that's not what he starts out with. If of course you have the wisdom to see it. I think, I think that's a very helpful foundation to lay that James is not here saying in the midst of trials that you don't understand and you're not finding joy there. He's not saying believe harder and, and he's not saying, Pray harder, because I, I think as as the text continues, that's another temptation. Well, both of those temptations that if, if I'm lacking this wisdom, okay, ask God. Great. I, okay, I'll do that. But what if I don't get it? Right. Let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. I mean, even as the text continues, if we don't have the foundation that you just laid for us, Pastor Linnell, that this is this is not James putting us back in into ourselves, relying on ourselves, on our trust, on, on anything that's in us. If we don't have that foundation, I think the text is only going to drive us farther down that path of despair that you were describing. If, if I'm not getting this wisdom, well, then there must be something wrong with me. Again, I don't think that's what James is doing as the text moves on, and that's why we need that foundation you laid for us. Right, and I think... Um there's always sort of pitfalls for us to fall back into that because it is our default. Our default position is to, you know, make it all about us. And and again, not even that so much as a, so much in rebuke, especially at this point in time, but as in a, why are you doing this to yourself? You know? Um, but I think that as you move into verses six through eight, it gets to be more difficult. And I think for a, a really simple and kind of silly reason. So again, in verses six through eight, which you, you know, you already read, it says, well, uh, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable in his ways. Well, if verse 5 wasn't a rebuke, how can you not read 6 through 8 as a rebuke? I mean, he just told you to pray for wisdom, but don't doubt, because if you doubt, then you're not going to get it, right? Mm. I mean, that's that's actually literally what the text says, except I'm I'm not sure that that's true. Uh, I think that this is a, a misunderstanding um, because, again, it would be insanely inconsistent for James to tell you to pray for wisdom from a God who doesn't rebuke you and to have that whole wisdom sound a lot like faith and then tell you that unless you have 
perfect undoubting faith, you can't pray for perfect undoubting faith. Hmm. I think the misunderstanding comes from the word that we have translated here as doubt. Hmm. Because that word is diakrinomenos, uh, 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 and it comes from the word diakrino, right? And it does mean to doubt. It does. But it, it also means to separate one's self, to have a hostile spirit, to fight with, and to make yourself an enemy of something. And you know, you know which, which other epistle, which other book of the Bible uses this word with that meaning? Jude. You know who Jude is? Jude's the brother of James. Now, does that prove anything? No, but I, I, think it's, I think it's pretty reasonable to make the assumption that they might use the word in a similar way. And not only that, but I mean, later in James 2, 4, the word is used when describing the mistreatment of other people. So in James 2, verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's using that same word in that phrase, right? And that is the setting up of one against the other with evil thoughts, making yourselves enemies of each other. And so when you read this passage here in 6 through 8, if you're reading it as in, you know, Oh, you got to pray for wisdom, but don't you dare doubt when you pray, because if there's even a little bit of doubt, you know, then God's not going to answer you. But that's ridiculous. That's that's silly. Right. But if you read this as um, pray for wisdom, but when you pray for wisdom, don't pray to God like he's your enemy because he's not. And if you make yourself an enemy of God, if you're turning around and just yelling at him, blaming him for all of these things, you're you're not going to get wisdom. Because you're not really asking for wisdom. You're just looking to blame him. I mean, it's sort of the difference between Moses complaining in the wilderness and the people of, you know, of, of, of the Hebrew people wandering around complaining in the wilderness. I mean, they were both kind of complaining sometimes, arguing, but one was looking to God and he was like, what do you want me to do with this? Seriously, I, what do I do? And the other people were like, you're, you're terrible. You're a terrible God. We're going to go back to Egypt. They had cucumbers, right? And so it's, it's sort of that difference. Um, so if, if you see things that way, that's what James is trying to say when he says, do not doubt. He's warning us not to curse God for our sufferings, but to pray with him or pray to him, to, to argue with God, right? To pour out your soul. Tell God that you are angry. Tell him that you're hurt. Tell him that you're scared. But don't curse God for these things. Ask him for help. Ask him for patience, for strength, for courage, and for this wisdom that, that James has talked about. Ask him as your father who loves you, and he will give to you without reproach. Mm. I, the, way, the way that you described it actually answered a question that I had written down ahead of time to think about with you. and the, Because that word doubt, like you said, I think does convey— the wrong impression to us. And and the example that came into my mind, when, when, at least in that typical way we understand the word doubt, was the man who brings his son to Jesus in Mark chapter 9, the boy has an unclean spirit. And you get this interaction with Jesus and the man. I'm going to read a couple of verses here from Mark chapter 9. And, and tell me if, if this is an illustration of, I think this is an illustration of what you're talking about, but, but tell me if, if this is really, so Mark chapter 9, I'm going to read at verse 21. Jesus asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? The father answers, from childhood, and has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus does it. He, he commands the unclean spirit to come out of him. Now, if, if we understand doubt in the wrong way, this account to me makes no sense and doesn't fit with, with the way that James would read if we understand doubt in the wrong way. But if we understand doubt in the way that you've laid it out and this matter of, of crying out to God for help in the midst of, as this man does, I believe, help my unbelief, then we see the God who gives without rebuking. Is, is that, does, I think that this illustrates what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, a lot of times I think we want things to fit into very neat sort of, you know, definable descriptions and things that, you know, that um, we can all sort of lay out in a, uh, in a book and have it make sense every time. And, and I don't think that you can't ever do that. I just think that when, when you're reading about people, um, that, like, so there's a difference between a theologian and a pastor, right? Um, you can be a really good theologian and be a terrible pastor, but you really can't be a good pastor and not be a decent theologian. And the reason for that is because you can you can do theology and get all the right answers, but trying to apply that to somebody when they're suffering, when they're you know when when they're in in doubt, when you know when a lot of things are going on in their lives, when they've got mixed emotions and also, man, I, there's no way I can do that. You know, the the Holy Spirit has to do that through me. And it, it takes a lot of times, I think a lot of, um, see, I'm going to say that it takes a lot of humility and that it sounds like I'm praising myself, which is not really the point here. I just mean that a lot of times I have to kind of look at myself and go, all right, what, what is wrong with me here? Because I'm obviously not connecting with this person. Hmm. Um, and I think that this is, you can read this in a lot of, uh, a lot of examples in the scripture. And I think that the one that you talked about with the man and his boy, uh, I think really kind of a heartbreaking tale if you if you take it seriously, and especially if you're a parent. Um, you know, you look at this guy and he could approach Jesus and be saying this in one of two ways, but the outcome is both the same, right? He could be looking at Jesus and just sort of desperately not really knowing what he's saying, be like, if you can do anything, please do something, and just not kind of realizing who he's talking to. Or he could actually start to be a little snippy with Jesus, right? But your disciples couldn't do anything. If you're this great guy, why don't you do something? Help me. And then Jesus is like, I want you to consider for just a minute that you're getting mad at me. And, you know, maybe you should approach me in, you know, in faith and love because I'm not your enemy here. And the guy's like, I know that. I know. Help, help me. You know, help, help me. I believe I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe. Just please help me. And I think that, you know, that sort of because it's a it's a it's honestly a, a pretty gentle rebuke. Um, but it, it probably, you know, cut pretty sharply in that moment because the guy's already hurting. I think you see this in some other places where, um, you know, the disciples, you know, they're like, so how many times do I need to forgive my brother? Like seven times? Or how many? And Jesus is like 70 times, seven times, all the times. And they're like, increase our faith, right? Because that's that's what's required. But I think one of the the, the best examples, um, and I think this is honestly what James or what, what James is doing here is, I think he's got um, Psalm seventy three in mind, um, and I think I think he's also got Job in mind, because this sounds, especially if you're going to understand doubt that way, this sounds a whole lot like Job. Um, you know, Job uh, one, I think it's verse twenty two. It says, in all of this, Job did not sin. But man, if you read through the book, if you read through the book of Job, Job does some serious lamenting. 
some serious arguing. And whether or not he he is blaming God as evil, he's just saying, look, th- this is the Lord. This is the Lord has done this. And if the Lord didn't do this, he certainly could have not done it. But he doesn't ever turn and curse God, right? And uh, it's a it's an interesting and difficult sort of book to get through. Um, not only because of sometimes how the 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 friends ramble on, but just because of the emotions that are going on with Job. But um, but I think that you see in that struggle very much what James is talking about here with wisdom. I mean, Job even brings up wisdom specifically in in some of the things that he's saying. And so that's what James is saying here, I think, is is he's looking at this and he's saying, look, you, you, I, I pray that you have the wisdom to see these sufferings in your life because they are indeed great and to rejoice in them. And if you don't, if you're really struggling, don't make yourself an enemy of God, right? Complain to him, talk to him, argue with him, engage with him, but don't turn around and blame God like he's abandoned you because he hasn't. Mm-hmm. With just a couple minutes here, about two minutes before the break, Pastor Linnell, you mentioned Psalm 73 as well. I think the story of Job is, is familiar to many of us, but just picking out one psalm maybe out of 150 isn't always quite as easy. What? what? I know. What? <laughs> I don't have the Psalter memorized. What? What is it in Psalm 23 that James is, is picking up here? All right, so uh, Psalm Psalm 73, and I think that it will become perhaps even uh, a little bit more apparent as we read the next couple of verses. But as you take a look at sort of your sufferings, um, and perhaps sometimes we consider our sufferings not looking at uh, God, but looking at our neighbor and comparing ourselves to them. And then so as, you, as you're looking at Psalm 73, the psalmist, he says, I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out of their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongues struck through the earth, and therefore the people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked, always at ease. They increase in their riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And so as you read sort of through, the psalmist is getting more and more angry as he looks around at how the wicked prosper and how he suffers, right? But then he gets to verse 16 and he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned your end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. And he he continues in, in that vein. And this, I think, is what James is describing as wisdom in our sufferings. And it's not that the psalmist isn't angry. Of course he's angry. But he comes around to see that God is good in spite of all of these sufferings, and that is what James wishes for us. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU, looking at James 1, verses 5 through 11. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. 
please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on Monday, June 15th. We're looking at James chapter 1, verses 5 through 11 with Pastor Sean Linnell. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, you did a great job of connecting verses 5 through 8 to verses 2 through 4, this matter of suffering under various kinds of trials. How is it that I might have joy if I don't have joy where does that come from? It comes from the Lord. You, you connected that very well for us. And, and as we were talking at the beginning of the program, sometimes James seems to jump around a bit, and he moves from this matter of asking for wisdom in the midst of, of trials that I'm suffering, then to start talking about the lowly brother and the rich. That's where maybe it starts to seem a bit disconnected. What's the move that James is making from verse 8 into verses 9 and following? I'm really good. I'm really glad you, you bring that up because I think that a lot of times when um, when we read in the scriptures, um, we think that maybe you know he's got a laundry list of topics, and then you know they just didn't have the space on the parchment to write bullet points or something. Um, and I, I don't think that that's that's necessarily the case. We might also be tempted to only connect this to the the previous uh, paragraph, the previous idea, and then see really no transition when he starts talking about how we treat one another. But what he does here is he talks about the the place or the the condition, the status of two different types of people. And you see a movement between these people. You see what happens to them. And we are, uh, in a sense, tempted to see them separately but I think James invites us to see them being brought together, right? So um, there's there's a wonderful collage of quotes here in 9 through 11. There's uh, parts of the uh, the Magnificat. I think there's also parts of uh, Psalm 103, which is also quoted by Peter in his epistle, by the way. So the whole thing about exalting the lowly and humbling the rich and the proud, or the all men are like grass. So Magnificat, Psalm 103, which is also in Peter. And then um, when he's talking here about the rich and the proud, uh, he says the rich, uh, the proud are humbled, the lowly are exalted. And in both of these cases, he says there's cause for us to rejoice, right? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich boast in his humiliation. And so, okay, we're talking about boasting, but this is obviously a very positive sort of idea, right? A very positive outlook to both being exalted and being humbled. And um, you might look at that and be like, okay, well, I totally get boasting in my exaltation, right? I totally get rejoicing when I'm being brought up, but why would I rejoice in being brought low? Why would I rejoice in being humbled? Um, 
there's some really interesting things to be said here for the Greek structure of the paragraph, for the way that they do emphasis and antithesis. But I, I think to make this paragraph more accessible, what I want you to see is two things. I want you to see the rich and the lowly are moved closer together. And they are moved closer together as they move closer to Jesus. So when James is talking about um, the lowly brother and the rich, he uses this term as rich, and then we immediately start thinking about money, right? Why not? He just said rich. But he's not primarily talking about worldly wealth here. That comes into play. It's not that it, it doesn't matter, but it's not the main issue. It's merely a consequence of the issue. When the lowly are exalted, the first thing that we should think of is those who are poor in spirit, right? Those who are humble, those who the world sees to be of little value. And that often coincides with how much money you have, but that can easily apply to influence or power or you know anything like that. And likewise, then also um, those, those who are, are rich, right? Those who, who are uh, not the lowly, those he's talking about are the ones who are self-righteous, the ones who are self-important, the ones who are proud, and that often does not, but does not always coincide with wealth, but also with power and influence. And yet God does not look at us like others do, seeing what's on the outside, but he looks at us seeing what's on the inside. And the first humbling and exalting that happens in our hearts is toward God and then also towards our neighbor. So the first thing you know, that happens is to, you know, to rejoice or to boast in the lowly being exalted. Well, the lowly are not exalted because God gives them money, right? That's not, that's not what he does. But he does give them the riches of his grace. He gives them a value and an importance and a love and a place in his kingdom and at his table that they would never find in this world. And they should rejoice in that. They shouldn't, you know, rejoice because they won the lottery or lament because they are poor, but they should boast in them in being exalted in and through Jesus Christ, because this is he's the one who has raised them up. Right. And then also for the one who is is rich, who is rich in this world, whether that be worldly wealth or whether that be prestige, or power and influence or maybe even the way that you, you see yourself, you know, boast in how the Lord brought you out of those things, because that, too, is a bondage. It's just a bondage that's a lot easier to deal with for your sinful nature. But it's still a bondage, and the Lord has brought you out of this too. And he's brought you to Christ and taught you not to rely on your wealth or your self-righteousness or your self-justification or your self-importance or how many people have to listen to you or anything else like that. He's taught you to boast in Christ Jesus. And so both of these people are moving closer to Jesus in this, in this way that I'm, I'm reading this, right? But as they do so, they're also moving closer together because the one who was lowly and the one who was rich or the one who was exalted in a worldly sense were as far apart as could be. One, one looked at the other with such resentment and such hatred, kind of like we were talking about in Psalm 73, right? The psalmist sounded angry because there were unrighteous, wicked people who prospered in this world. And the person who was rich looked on the lowly with disdain if they ever even noticed them at all. But now 
now we get to rejoice in each other. We get to boast in each other. The one who sees the rich and the proud, you know, the one who was rich and the one who was proud gets to boast in their brother as, as they see this person sort of realize what's going on in, in their life. And not to say, hey, I told you so. Boy, I'm glad that guy got what was coming to him. No, but to see him turn to Jesus. And the person who was rich, the person who was exalted, maybe finally actually sees their brother. And then they get to rejoice because they have a brother who they didn't even know was there. But now, now they are. And not only that, but the thing about it is, and the reason that he's not talking about uh, strictly about uh, uh, worldly wealth is because those riches— those aren't necessarily bad. But now the rich and one who was exalted, who has now been humbled, no longer sees all of this rid, this wealth and stuff as uh, as something that belongs to him, something that he needs to protect, something that he's done to build up, you know, the, the, the numerical value of his life's worth or whatever else. Now he sees this as a wonderful treasure store and gift of God to bless his brothers and sisters, to bless those people that he didn't even see. And so... When you can, in the wisdom of faith that the Holy Spirit gives, stop seeing the rich people as your enemy and stop seeing the poor people as your enemy, when you can start boasting in Christ because you're both being brought together, then, then all of a sudden we have, we have, something, we have something beautiful and we can, we can rejoice in something that is, I don't know, that the world can't take away, regardless of our circumstance. Yeah. And I think that if we see that in that way, then the transition that James is going to make really quite quickly into how we treat our neighbor uh, is, is going to make a lot more sense. Hmm. The picture that you painted there of these two groups moving closer to Jesus and so being moved closer together and finally seeing one another truly I mean, I, I just I can't help but but see a, a wonderful picture of of what our society just desperately needs right now. I, I think that that's I think that that's probably true. You know, is it probably true? Of course, it's true. I mean, like James just doesn't apply anymore. I mean, of course it does. And I think this is where a lot of times. Um, like we we read, and the words they make they're they're so easy to say, you know. Oh, the idea! Yeah, I love the idea. It's a great idea, but putting that into practice is hard. Yeah, you know, um, and it's it's hard because, as James is going to point out, um, you're not only in a world that will not see it this way, but you also have a sinful nature that will not mm. see it this way. And so when we talk about um, our society today uh, and certain biases or different things, I think that, you know, if we're going to if we're going to look at that and we're going to look at, um, you know, our, our biases and our prejudices and those sorts of things and look at them and be offended that somebody would say that they exist. Like really what what you're being offended of is is having somebody point out and say, no, your sinful nature didn't go away. I mean, for any for for any religious body, like we should be like the only ones who are like, oh, that makes sense, because did we expect that that was going to go away? But on the other side, I think that sort of the pitfall we fall into is thinking that there's something we can do to make that go away. 
Um, and then going out and trying all of these things to make our sinful nature go away and then becoming so disappointed and frustrated when it doesn't that we give up. Mm. But we are going to live not just in uh, the world, not just in our country, but also in the church. We're constantly going to live in a state of repentance. And that's not a state of repentance for one particular thing, but a state of repentance for, for who we are. And it's that sort of, you know, humility that's really difficult to deal with um, because, you know, as the joke goes, you know, self-hating Lutherans or, you know, whatever. But it, but it is true. I mean, that is what Jesus talks about. But in the midst of those things, how can we still rejoice in our brothers and sisters? You know, because, again, there's going to be there's going to be things that uh, that all of us. Uh, either do or, or or think towards our neighbor, regardless of you know where we come from or, or our background, um, and and all of those things um, are going to need to. That's never going to go away. Like you, that battle's not going to go away until Jesus comes back. But we still we still need to fight it, and I think that is um, that's very much what James is is going to be about. Mm. You know, he's going to say, you know, hey. You know, if if you really are brothers and sisters, then you should you should never stop trying to be brothers and sisters. And then, you know, and that so I don't know, I can ramble on forever, I guess, about that. But well, let's 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 keep bringing it back to the text then. So so you're going to need to keep working to live as brothers and sisters, as, as you said here. Here he starts to lay that out with the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation. And I assume it doesn't use the word brother again, but the rich brother in his humiliation, so that these are assumed to be brother. That James is talking about brothers in Christ. He's not talking about a, a rich, or as you, you said, someone who is powerful in this world. He's not talking about someone who's, whose riches have excluded him from the kingdom, but rather whose, whose riches have been set aside. He's not putting his trust in those riches and is a part of the kingdom. Now, <clears throat> Uh, there's a couple of things I think we could talk about, Pastor Linnell. You mentioned a couple of different scripture passages that James is is pulling off of putting together here. We can look at those, and, and also then the image that he uses here. The image is, he talks about flowers of the grass just being scorched by the heat, and he compares that to the rich man fading away. He really focuses in on, after bringing up the lowly at the very beginning, he spends more time talking about what happens to the rich. You can pick up either one of those threads. Yeah, well, you know, the things that happen to the rich, it depends on what you mean by, you know, by glory and, and the things that, you know, you work for. It's um, it's sort of a thing that we go that we go back and forth with, but I think it's a distinction and a, a teaching that, that Lutherans know pretty well. You know, there's a, a, a kingdom of the left, there's a kingdom of the right, um, both of them are are good, but only one of them is perfect. Um, there's there's going to be a, a saint and a sinner, um, and a lot of times we take a look at those things that we've we've built up and we say, uh, but these are good things. Why would I let them go? Right. First article gifts. Right. Stuff that we've built up. Why would we let those things go? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, it it is a good first article gift, but you know, you can't. Um, you can't just say, okay, well, you know, God gave me bread. I don't want to eat it because then it'll be gone. And that would be a stupid thing to do. 
You know, you can't just sort of take a look and say that we should never try to, you know, to improve upon things. But I think the the struggle is going to be is that we spend our whole lives trying to improve upon things. And then at the end of it, like the, you know, like the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, uh, it's all gone. So so what do you do? Do you fall into despair because all of your glory, uh, you know, is like the flowers of the field and all men are like grass and I'm going to, you know, work hard my whole life. And then everything I work for is going to fall away or a different generation is going to screw it up or a hundred other different things. No, no, because those things weren't about you. I mean, you did them. You worked hard. The Lord used them. I'm not saying that they weren't good things, but those things that you built up, those things that the Lord set you to, those things that we might call vocation. Those things are there to glorify God and to serve your neighbor. And we are stewards of those things, not owners of those things. Um, and I think that that, that that idea that everything I have should be for my neighbor's benefit, that, that I'm not a, an owner but a steward, clashes very hard with some of those, those things and values that, that perhaps I hold dear. And how do you, how do you uphold both of those things? You know, how do you live in the world but not be of the world and a whole bunch of other stuff? But I think that um, what the Lord would have us do and what James encourages us to do is to uh, rejoice regardless of what happens, so long as our focus is on our neighbor and on uh, their well-being and on uh, coming together in Christ and in in. Uh, uh, being brought to repentance and to his grace. Because not only is the epistle of James designed to talk about how we should live towards our neighbor within the body of Christ, but how do we present ourselves in in a world that doesn't know him? Uh, it's not like the ancient world uh, didn't know who the Jews were, um, but they would still live in the world. And by the way, James is written to a primarily Jewish Christian community. So it's not like you'd wander around and people would be like, oh, oh, who's this God that you're talking about? I've never heard of that, right? We've only had these pagan gods. Like Jews have been around for a while. Um, and so I think in a, very, uh, in a very similar way, if you wander around as a very faithful Christian and you, you try to talk about uh, the word of God in a faithful way, and what it means and what it looks like to live in repentance and joy, even in the midst of sufferings and those sorts of things. Like, it's not going to be that different than in the early church. Except for, you know, of course, uh, us not being crucified in the streets by the emperor, thanks be to God. Mm. But, but I think that it's the people that you interact with and the way that we approach life in those things, in those sufferings, it's not just rejoicing because it makes God happy. It's not just rejoicing because it's the right thing to do. But rejoicing, regardless of anything that happens, rejoicing in your brothers and sisters is the the means by which the Holy Spirit is going to show your faith to the world. And this will come up later as you start reading in some of the latter passages and chapters of James, like when he talks about faith without works is dead. Why? You know, is it because, you know, you don't do the works, that means you don't have faith? No, it's because if all you do is walk around and talk about what you believe, but you don't actually live that out, then it's going to be hard for people to take you seriously. You know, and that happens in lots of ways. It happens certainly in your confession with, you know, whether or not you're going to church or stuff like that, or whether or not you're living in sin. But you know where, where it really shows? 
James says it really, really shows in the way that you treat your neighbor. Because if you're the most important person in your world, then none of the other things you say actually make any sense. They're all self-serving. But if you love Jesus and you love your neighbor and you have no thought of yourself, well, now maybe the things that you say have some impact. So this this matter of the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation, the rich boasting in his, his humiliation, they are drawn closer to Christ. They're drawn closer to each other. But if I'm following you, then that also means that they are drawn, how do I say it? They're drawn closer to loving any neighbor, brother or not, such that this becomes a, a witness to the world of what Christ has done. Is, th- is that what you're driving at? Yeah, I think so. At the end of that passage, you know, uh, he does focus on the rich man a whole lot because it's, I think, uh, a lot of times easier uh, to become self-righteous when uh, you're succeeding a lot, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. But um, but at the end of this thing, he says, and so the, so also the rich man uh, man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You know, I mean, he says uh, he will pet, for the sun rises and its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. And so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And, you know, one of the ways that you could read that is to take that previous passage, the sun rises and with its scorching heat, it withers the grass and its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. That, you know, you could read that as describing the lowly man. That, you know, the world sees him as worthless and dirty and nothing beautiful, but God describes him in this this really beautiful and loving sort of way and then describes this tragic event where he's just scorched by the, you know, by the heat of the sun and by the the difficulties of this world. And I think a really good example of how that might be uh, is you, you talk about Jonah, right? Jonah hates the people at Nineveh. And uh, he goes and sits on this mountain because he wants God to just smite them for their wickedness, right? And God has this wonderful plant grow and give him shade. And Jonah learns, man, he loves that plant. And he, and then God kills it mercilessly. And Jonah is so mad. He's like, why would you do that to this beautiful thing? And God's like, why did you love that? Because it was so great. And God's like, yeah, but you didn't plant it and you didn't do anything. And yet you love it. How much more do you think I love those people for whom I have grown and watched over and taken care of? And that's just sort of where it ends, right? He doesn't even wait for Jonah's response because it doesn't matter. Everybody gets the point, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think in that sort of way, you can read this passage. And, you know, if you're reading that, oh, the grass withers and the flower falls and that's totally me. Yeah, it is. But think about your neighbor. And the beauty of your neighbor that you're missing and that we're not even paying attention to is the world just comes by and scorches them away, right? And then also, he says about the rich, he says, so also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Because you know what? Like the guy from, or like the preacher from Ecclesiastes says, like, how many rich people do you remember? I mean, I'm sure that there are some that the world remembers and everything else, but when the Lord comes, they'll be remembered no more. But how many, how many rich people, you know, because there's a lot of them. But do they matter to you? I, mean, I don't know. I suppose maybe if you're, you know, rich, but I don't know. Like, I don't care. You know, some rich billionaire dies and I'm like, oh, that's it's terribly tragic. I mean, I care, you know, as a human being, but it's not like I care anymore because he was a billionaire. I mean, I wasn't in his will. Was I in his will? I don't think I was in his will, right? So, you know, in the same sort of way, like all these things that you built up, those aren't going to matter. But you know what will? You know who's going to remember you? 
it's the people that you went out and you touched their lives and you you went out and you um you were you were selfless in the way that you loved them the people who are going to uh, remember you that the impact that it's going to make are the people that you shared Christ with that you that through the holy spirit's work in your heart you were able to maybe reach them with the word of god and they came to believe Christ you know jesus says Store up not for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, moth and rust destroy, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven. And everybody goes, yeah, that's right. I need to believe in Jesus so I can go to heaven with streets of gold and I can have a house up in the you know the hills wherever at Elvis is singing up over the mountains and on an old rugged cross. No, he's talking about your neighbor. He's talking about the people that you live with. Invest yourself in them. Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. And everybody's like, that's right. You shouldn't rebuke a fool. You should just, you know, if people don't want to hear, but no, he's saying, don't throw your neighbor under the bus. They just didn't have buses back then. So don't throw your pearls before swine. Your neighbor is the pearl. So I think a lot of times, and Jesus does this the whole time. Every time Jesus is preaching in the, you know, in the Sermon on the Mountain, he's talking to people, you know, do you think that Jesus came down from heaven incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary to tell people that divorce was bad? Like they didn't know? No. What he's saying is that maybe instead of thinking about when it's okay to divorce somebody and when it's not okay to divorce somebody, you, you should think a little bit more about the relationship that's being destroyed. And sometimes, sometimes um, there is there is no good option. But there should never be a time when we rejoice about this. And you guys are rejoicing because you're keeping the law and you're using this as an opportunity to show God how awesome you are when all you did was throw your neighbor out on the street. And so when, when Jesus presents the law, he's not there to be a new Moses. He's just saying, look, this was never here for you to exalt yourself. This was here for you to, to exalt your neighbor. This was here as a curb to keep you from hurting your neighbor. And I really think that's all James is doing here. He's saying, look, you're Christians. Did you pay any attention to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? You have all of these things. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are all of these terrible things. Blessed are you when all these terrible things happen to you. And then here is the way that you treat your neighbor. And so in a certain respect, if you read through the epistle of James, it's really just kind of a rehash of the Sermon on the Mount. It's just in a very James sort of way. Mm-hmm. Great, great stuff there, Pastor Linnell, to to keep our focus on loving the neighbor, which is what, what James is doing. And that that only happens, as you said, when both neighbors are drawn closer to Jesus. Only then will they be drawn closer to each other. Pastor Sean Linnell is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska, helping us this morning with James chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Pastor Linnell, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Drawn closer to Jesus, the lowly brother in his exaltation, the rich brother in his humiliation, both drawn closer to Jesus and so drawn closer to each other to love one another, not to focus on the self, but to focus on the neighbor, the need of the neighbor, so that everything that we have, everything that we steward is used for their good. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.